Psalm 9, verse 17. This is our third and final message in a special Church is Essential series. The first message in the series was titled just that, Church is Essential. The second message was Christ Church has been and always will be gospel sedition. And the third message, today's message, is this. Christ Church is essential. Satan's church and state are evil. Christ Church is essential. Satan's church and state are evil. And Satan's church and state always conspire together against Christ Church. And they are doing so now. Their evil is afoot. Psalm 9 verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell in all nations that forget God. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. This short verse is the motto in reverse of Satan's church and Satan's state. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Satan's church says, no, the wicked are Christ's people. The wicked are the broken. The wicked are the genuine worshipers. The wicked are those who are washed in the blood but remain wicked still and lift up unholy hands to a holy God. Genuinely, the wicked baby murderers worship Christ sincerely and evangelical churches across our land. That is the motto of Satan's church. The wicked, unrepentant, homosexual, lesbian, bisexual, transgender Fornicators, adulterers, sexually perverse, worship Jesus truly. They're just broken in ways different than some of the rest of us. The wicked are invited into Satan's church as Christians of good standing. They're baptized in Satan's church as Christians of good standing. They're employed in Satan's church as pastors in good standing. Indeed, Satan's church has taken Psalm 9, 17 and turned it on its head. The wicked shall be turned into hell. No, the wicked shall be turned into heaven, they say. The wicked shall be turned into Christ's church. But God's word is clear. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Satan's church doesn't require repentance. Satan's church doesn't require a miracle of the Holy Spirit called regeneration. And the fruits thereof, repentance and a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, which means you have confessed him as Lord. In Satan's church, the wicked are turned into heaven. But in Christ's true church, of course, the wicked shall be turned into hell. In Christ's true church, praise God, the wicked are regenerated and made new creatures, born again from above. In Christ's true church, the wicked are sinners no more and made saints washed in the blood of the Lamb and indwelt with the Spirit of God. The wicked shall be turned into hell is the first half of Psalm 9, 17. And all the nations that forget God, that's the second half. Satan's church and state are evil. There's an unholy union between Satan's church and Satan's state. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. And hear me, nations forget God because of Satan's church. Before the birth of the church, before the New Testament era, before Christ came and walked this earth, suffered, died, and rose again as the only Savior conquering sin and Satan and death on behalf of all those who will repent and confess Him as Lord, before the church there was Israel. And the same thing occurred in Israel. There was Satan's synagogue. There was Satan's temple. There was Satan's priesthood and Satan's state. Opposed to God. And when Christ came, Satan's temple and the priesthood and the rulers thereof were opposed to Christ. As they have always been opposed to Christ. As they have always been opposed to God. All the nations that forget God shall be turned into hell. Our nation is ripping asunder. Our nation is on fire. Our constitution is on fire. Now mind you, it's the corner, but the entire providential gift recognizing God 
as the supreme authority of the universe and the supreme authority of all nations and the supreme giver of rights to mankind created in his image, the entire constitution will soon be burned if Christ's church, his true church, does not stand up against Satan's foe church and Satan's state united with Satan's church. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. We want to point the finger out at the nation for forgetting God. We want to point the finger out at the nation and the sinners therein for calling God's wrath down upon us. Oh, but saints, it's Satan's church and Satan's state united together that are calling God's wrath down on our nation and the Western world and the world beyond it is the light of the gospel that has shined so brilliantly in years past is being snuffed out. Quite literally, as even the church's doors are shut. There is a plot afoot, far bigger than any China virus. An ancient plot against Christ, against the King, and against the souls of men. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God is the theme verse of Satan's church and Satan's state only reversed. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We must start with the house of God. For the true church has been compromising with Satan's church. The true church has been holding hands with Satan's church. The true church has allowed Satan's church to infiltrate it, to sit in its midst. The true church has united together in Portland and across our nation in documents declaring how they will stand together beneath China virus panic and hysteria, beneath tyrannical leftist forces secular, atheistic, Marxist forces that are shutting down Christ's church to advance their agenda in our nation and the earth. To grab power. Power they have no intention of letting go of. Christ's church is essential, saints. Christ's church is the vehicle of Christ's gospel. The only hope of salvation for mankind. Without which all of mankind is doomed to eternity under God's judgment in hell. Christ's church is the messenger of God's law, the only absolute unchanging standard and source of morality, without which mankind descends into lawlessness, anarchy, savagery, every kind of evil, and temporal and eternal suffering. Christ's church is essential. The China virus hysteria has to stop. It's a tool of Satan's church and state to shut down Christ's church and its law and gospel influence in an attempt to take power that it has no intention of ever giving back. And mind you, it's a precursor of what is to come. This is a test of the resolve of Christ's church. Is it reasonable to continue to drive your car and go to work, to the grocery, to visit family, or to any other essential destination? Yes, Is it medically reasonable to consider church essential and go to church? Yes. As of today, this morning, 358 people have reportedly died, reportedly died of the China virus in our state of 4.3 million people. 358 is 0.008% of 4.3 million. Think about that. And bear in mind the number of pandemic deaths are almost certainly being significantly inflated for political and financial reasons. In comparison, over 50,000 auto accidents were reported and 489 Oregonians died violent deaths in their cars last year in our state of 4.3 million. 489 is 0.011% of 4.3 million. At this point, your chance of dying by auto accident is higher than your chance of dying by China virus. And the signs alongside the road should read, Park your car now. Park cars, save lives. We cannot forget that 825 Oregonians died by their own hand through suicide in 2017 alone. And far more will die this year. 825 is 0.019% of 4.3 million. 
Statistically speaking, it would be just as or more reasonable for all the billboards alongside our roads and highways to say, hug your neighbor, hugs save lives. I'm not joking. In fact, when you consider that 528 Oregonians died violent deaths with firearms in 2017, it would be far more logical for all the signs alongside our roads and highways to say, turn in your guns, save lives. The China virus hysteria has to end. It has to stop. We cannot continue to bow to the deception. It's a completely reasonable risk to own and use guns, to own and drive a car, to go to church, despite the real but negligible threat of gun violence and gun accidents, auto accidents, and the China virus. Christ church must stand up against Satan's church and state. Now is the time. Now is the hour. Oh, there's another hour coming. Yes, the radical forces of the LGBT movement, the radical forces of homosexual perversion are coming for our churches. They're coming for our Bibles. They're coming for your children. They're coming for our freedom. They're coming for our Constitution. But the time to stand is now. The time to cease to submit to Satan's church and Satan's state is now. The time to purge Satan's church out of Christ's church is now. Pastor MacArthur's call for Christ's church to stand up against tyranny closes with these words. As government policy moves further away from biblical principles and as legal and political pressures against the church intensify, we must recognize that the Lord may be using these pressures as a means of purging to reveal the true church. Succumbing. The governmental overreach may cause churches to remain closed indefinitely. How can the true church of Jesus Christ distinguish herself in such a hostile climate? There's only one way. Bold allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, Satan's church pretends to be Christ's church. But it defies all that is holy. It perverts the gospel. And it denies the lordship of Christ. Satan's church and state go hand in hand. They're happily wedded partners in Satan's service. Satan's church is filled with Satan's political servants. Satan's church is filled with members of the party of Satan. Make no mistake, the Democratic Party is the party of Satan. Hear it again. The Democratic Party is the party of Satan. And voting for a Democrat at this point in history is treason against Christ and the United States of America. Christians don't vote for the party of Satan. False converts do. Apostates do. Christ enemies do. America's enemies do. Christians aren't members of the party of Satan. False converts are. Apostates are. Christ enemies are. America's enemies are. It may have been less clear a few decades ago, but it's now an obvious and irrefutable fact that a vote for a Democratic candidate is a vote for Satan's anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-Gospel, anti-Church, anti-marriage, anti-family, anti-unborn baby, anti-America, anti-Constitution, anti-Freedom Party. It's irrefutable. Any seemingly, seemingly big-hearted fellow who claims there are Christians who ignorantly vote for Democrats, not realizing that the DNC has adopted Satan's Antichrist agenda as their platform, is manifesting his own willful ignorance. You would have to be physically and spiritually deaf and blind to have maintained ignorance of the satanic platform agenda and deeds of the Democratic Party over the last several decades. They're not big-hearted at all. They have no heart for Christ no heart for righteousness, no heart for perishing sinners who think they're Christians. Unrepentant, supporting everything God hates. Satan's church with Satan's state, sitting in Christ's church, working alongside Christ's church, hand in hand with Christ's church. This must end. Satan's church and state are evil. They are evil. And they've formed an evil alliance. Satan's Christians, that's in quotes, have aligned themselves, their passions, their convictions, their dollars, and their votes behind Satan's politicians. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for the radical homosexual movement seeking to pervert and destroy our children and strip parents of their God-given right and responsibility to protect their children from sexual deviancy. 
It's already legal in our state for government authorities to come in and take your child and give your child a sex change operation against your parental will. That is the result of Satan's church uniting with Satan's state against Christ's church. And the state that Christ's church founded called the United States of America some years ago. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for the radical homosexual movement seeking to destroy our First Amendment constitutional rights in order to criminalize the truth of God's word that exposes sexual perversion as nation-demolishing, life-destroying, soul-damning sin. It is increasingly dangerous to preach the word of God in the United States of America. It's nearly impossible to preach the word of God publicly on the streets of Great Britain and Europe at large, the West, and that's coming here. It's coming here. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for the radical homosexual movement seeking to outlaw the truth of the Bible in the church, in the home, in schools, in the workplace, online, and in the open air. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for the global baby genocide that has resulted in 1.6 billion babies being violently slaughtered over the last 40 years. Years. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for the murder of 1,000 black babies per day in America's abortion clinics. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for racial division, strife, and oppression. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for lawlessness, anarchy, Antifa, riots, looting, vandalism, burning cities, burning flags, and burning Bibles. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for secular atheist Marxist tyranny the destruction of America, the murder of millions of unborn Americans, and the damning of countless Americans to eternal judgment in hell. A vote for a Democrat is cause for church discipline. Our churches are full of unrepentant, unholy members of the party of Satan who are actively supporting Satan's evil Antichrist agenda. Is it any wonder why every kind of evil is rapidly advancing in America and the Western world? Is it any wonder why secular atheist tyrants are successfully criminalizing God's word and those who dare to preach it? Is it any wonder why lawlessness is prevailing and our cities are burning? Is it any wonder why we're under God's judgment? Christians are apt to blame non-Christians. But the word of God is clear that judgment begins with the corrupt, unrepentant, unholy house of the Lord where wicked men and women who vote for Satan's party and are members of Satan's party are welcomed and called Christians. Again, Psalm 9, verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. And 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Obey the gospel of God. It's not to be merely believed. It's not to be casually believed. It's not to be prayed at some point in time. It's to be obeyed. It's to own you, to rule in you. Christ is King. Christ is Lord. That manifests itself in those who have believed truly the gospel of God. Those who have believed truly upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Oh, imperfectly, yes. But not so as imperfect that we would align ourselves with Satan's state. With Satan's bloodthirsty ways. Slaughtering children. Promoting every kind of vile perversion known to man. That's the platform of the Democratic Party. That's the platform of the Black Lives Matter movement. The slaughter of children and perversion. You can sum it up. You don't have to go to their website and read it all. It's the slaughter of children and perversion. You don't have to go to the DNC website and read it all. Just know it's the slaughter of children and perversion. That's what it's about. It's satanic. Call it what it is. It's satanic. It's evil. If you vote for it, you're evil. We need to quit mincing words. We need to... Stop being cowardly and silent. God's wrath is upon us. And judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 7 says, The day is coming in which the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan's church will soon be crushed. Satan's state will be crushed with it. We usually think of the 
governments of this world, the nations of this world who are opposed to God and His Christ in a Psalm 2 manner, as we consider the return of the king and the blood flowing to the horse's bridles as he unleashes the sword of his mouth against his enemies. But hear me, it's not just the nations of this world, it's Satan's church and those members thereof. They will be crushed beneath King Jesus. For they hate him. They hate him. They are his enemies. They show it by the display of their passions, by the display of how they spend their time and resources and what they support in supporting Satan's state, Satan's politicians. Christ is coming with fiery vengeance for those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who say, the wicked shall be turned into heaven. The wicked are Christians too. For those who trample lightly upon Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Christ will trample upon them with his feet glowing like burning brass. Hebrews 5.9 says, Jesus became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All who obey him. He's not to be toyed with. He's not to be prayed to and then defied and denied and blasphemed. No, you're to bend your knee to Christ the King, Christ the Lord. Confess Him as your Lord and rise to serve Him. And if the Spirit of God has regenerated you, that's exactly what you will do through the power of the Spirit of God. This false Christianity, this satanic Christianity, has a satanic gospel that leaves you dead in your sin. It leaves you a slave to the evil one and manifesting that slavery all over the place, united with the evil one's state. But, oh, singing praise to Jesus. And sadly, genuine Christians are happy to sit in the same pew and raise unholy hands up with men and women who are dead in their sins. Raising up dead hands. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. We need repentance. Christ's church needs to rise up and throw out these wolves in sheep's clothing that are at the helm, that are filling their pulpits up with lies and filling the pews up with liars and blasphemers. If they can't throw out these antichrists in the pulpit, then they need to throw themselves out and find true churches and true under-shepherds that they might serve Christ in the true church that is essential and be part of Satan's church and Satan's state no more. Matthew 3.10 says, Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh, I'm a tree for Jesus! I just support homosexuality and bisexuality and lesbianism and gender dysphoria and unchecked slaughter of human beings in the womb. No, you're not for Jesus. You're a tree that's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. You're an enemy of Jesus. The smoke of your torment will ascend forever and ever unless you repent and confess Him as Lord. Hear me, this whole woke movement is Satan's church. This whole social justice movement is Satan's church. It's made massive inroads. It's swallowed up men. Frankly, it's astonishing. Men that I once thought were heroes of the faith, stalwart champions of the Word of God, valiant warriors for Christ. They've been swallowed up whole. Are we to sit in church with members of Satan's party on Sunday? Are we to sing how we love Jesus along with members of Satan's party on the Lord's Day? Are we to eat donuts with, to fellowship with, and take communion with members of Satan's party? Members of Satan's party who profess to be Christians must be called to repent and confess Christ as Lord. It's not an option. Love for their souls must compel us to give them Christ's sober warning from Matthew 7.21. Hear this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness it doesn't get more lawless than the platform of the democratic party it doesn't get more lawless than the platform of the black lives matter movement go from me you who practice lawlessness that's what they will hear the members of satan's party or worshiping jesus today in satan's churches all across our land they're not really worshiping jesus they're blaspheming him their lying mouths blaspheme Him. 
And those so-called pastors that welcome them as Christians are hating their precious souls. They're hating them. It's an astounding hatred. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Supporting the slaughter of countless millions of babies, creating the image of God for the glory of God, is not doing the will of the Father in heaven. It's as far from it as you can get. Supporting the blasphemy of God and supporting homosexuality and lesbianism and bisexuality and transgenderism and gender dysphoria. It's the same kind of sin as abortion. You're assaulting the image of God in mankind. It's demonic. And yet we have so-called Christians doing that. So-called Christian pastors doing that. They must be warned. Love demands it. Apathy and silence are hatred. Hatred foremost of Christ. But secondly, of those perishing souls. Professing Christians who claim to be Democrats or vote for Democrats need to be warned that they've embraced the God-hating platform and agenda of the devil. And unless they repent and follow Christ as Lord, they'll suffer the devil's end. They've embraced Romans 1, 18-32 as professing Christians. It declares they're under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We see the symptoms of it. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. For this reason God also gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of women burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. I have here the statement of unity regarding the reopening of churches in Oregon. And the vast majority of churches on there are either Satan's churches or they are filled with Satan's servants. They're not bringing enough truth from God's word, not enough gospel, not enough law to purge the church, to clean the church, either through those sitting in their pews genuinely getting saved or those sitting in their pews saying, I'll have no part of this. You can't say that. You can't expose my sins like that. You can't stand against Satan's state like that. Just up the road, one of the largest churches in Portland, Beaverton Foursquare, Pastor Brad Williams, the new pastor there, baptizes unrepentant homosexual men and women in so-called mirage, homosexual or lesbian marriage. He'll baptize them as Christians. When I baptize any of you, I baptize you as a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. What does he call the non-binary? I baptize you as a thing in Christ? As a zay? A z? Whatever they are now? The Bible only knows brother and sister, male and female. What madness is upon us? It's called satanic madness. And any church that baptizes unrepentant homosexuals and lesbians as Christians is Satan's church. And any pastor that does it is Satan's pastor. Did you not hear Romans 1? God gave them up to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies. God gave them up to vile passions. Their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Men with men committing what is shameful. It's shameful. It's lust. It's against nature. It's vile passion. It's dishonor of their bodies. It's the lust of their hearts. It's under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against this. Romans 1.28 And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. It's a debased mind. To do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God. Do we not get it? They're haters of God. Satan's church hates God. Satan's state hates God. Satan's church and state are united together in their hatred of God and the manifestations of their hatred. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they declare them Christians. Knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 
They declare them Christians. It is Psalm 917 turned on its head. The wicked shall be turned into hell. No, no, says Brad Williams. The wicked shall be turned into heaven. They're Christians. I baptize them as Christians. I commission them for Christian service in the local church as Christians. I cannot express how evil this is. Pastor Brad will never show up at the abortion clinic to preach God's law and gospel to save souls and rescue babies. But he did show up at the Black Lives Matter rally and stand with every vile thing coming out of Satan's rally. And that's on the church website with all the congregants saying how proud they are that Pastor Brad would go down and stand with Black Lives Matter. You know how to get a big church in Portland, Oregon, the most atheist, God-hating city in America? Do that. Be Satan's pastor. Be Satan's church. And you'll get a big church. The world will love you for it. Revelation 21, verse 8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That will be their end because they're in the list and they're not repentant of it. Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. Blessed are those who what? Do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. This is not works righteousness. It's righteousness that works. It's Christ's righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, actually in men and women. And it works out in them. Blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city, but outside... Outside are the dogs. Spiritual dogs. No, no, no. They're right inside in Satan's church. They're inside. They're baptized. They're servants. They're Christians in Satan's church. No, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. That's the description of Satan's church. And it's alive in a well in Portland, Oregon, and in the United States of America as a whole. And even Christ's true church is infiltrated with many of Satan's church members sitting within it. And they need to be purged out for the protection of Christ's true church and for the good of their own souls that they might figure out that they're not part of Christ's church and repent and be saved. Revelation 20.10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that will be the end for all the members of Satan's church and Satan's state. They will hold hands united in their evil deeds all the way into the devil's hell. Mind you, it's God's hell. But the devil is the chief deceiver and sinner therein, and they will all be tormented day and night forever and ever. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. The real church and real pastors don't let Satan's servants sit in the house of the Lord blaspheming God with their false worship and false profession of faith in Jesus. They lovingly call them to repent. They lovingly call them to confess Christ as Lord. And if they won't repent to confess Christ as Lord, Christ's faithful under-shepherds put Satan's servants out of Christ's church. That's not a pastor meddling in politics where he doesn't belong. That's the essential and faithful pastoral ministry of God's Word, God's law, and God's gospel. That's genuine love of Christ and His church. That's genuine love of perishing sinners who think they're Christians while they serve Satan. That's the first step to stopping the rapid advance of every kind of evil in America and the Western world, to putting out the fires burning down our cities, and to sending the secular, atheist, Marxist, woke, BLM, radical, homosexual uprising back to the depths of hell and where it came, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. We must rightly judge and take biblical action to purge, to cleanse the house of the Lord. To make it the house of the Lord and not the house of the Lord and Satan or the house of Satan altogether. This may sound harsh, but it needs to be said. Love of Christ, His church, and perishing false converts demands it. The reason some pastors are keeping their churches closed isn't for fear of the China virus or fear of government reprisal. It's for fear of losing the members of Satan's party, the Democratic Party, that fill their pews and their offering plates. It's for fear of losing their leftist congregants, the woke CNN-believing, BLM-supporting, abortion-supporting, unrepentant homosexuals, a Christian too, chanting, 
Atheistic Marxism sympathizing false converts who help pay the pastor's salary and the mortgage on the glorified goat shed that's now sitting empty. Is your church really closed? I ask, for those who will hear this in the broader world, is your church really closed out of an abounding caution and Romans 13 conviction, or is it because your pastor is a goat herder and your church is a goat shed full of unregenerate men and women with unholy passions, appetites, fears, goals, and allegiances? Now again, there are genuine churches that are closed right now, but there is a large percentage of those that are closed because they're goat sheds. They're Satan's churches. Many Christians need to pray their church never opens its doors again and thank God for setting them free from Satan's church where Satan's party members make a mockery of Christianity. Many Christians need to find a real church with a real pastor, with real Christians to live and worship alongside in spirit and truth where the members of Satan's party are lovingly called to repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord or get their satanic agenda and influence out of Christ's church. That's the option. Repent, confess Christ as Lord, or get your satanic influence and agenda out of Christ's church. Those are the only two options. I'm not looking to see someone who's in league with Satan sanctified. No, I'm looking to see them saved. And the church is for the church. Church is ecclesia, the called out ones. Until you're called out, you don't really belong here. If you're still serving Satan, you don't belong in Christ's church. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Saints, beware lest you drift away. Beware lest Satan's servants, Satan's church, who are around you in the community and maybe in your extended family and friendship circles, unless Satan's church drips Satan's poison in your ears. Beware lest you drift away. For the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. How shall you escape if you neglect so great a Savior and His gospel that saves? Dear saints, how far we have fallen. How far the church in America has drifted from God and thus America as a nation has drifted from its Christian foundation and the God thereof. Again, Psalm 9.17, The wicked shall be turned into hell. The church has become wicked. The church shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Thus the nation has become wicked. How far the church in America has drifted from God and thus America as a nation has drifted from its Christian foundation and the God thereof. America's founding fathers referenced the Bible more than any other source in their writings. Between 1760 and 1805, the formative years of our American government. Our constitutional civil liberties are a direct result of the founders' moral and religious convictions which were based on a belief in the holy creator God of the Bible who created the heavens and the earth, all life and mankind as the pinnacle of his creation in his image and fixed the moral laws that govern men just as certainly as he fixed the laws of nature that govern the material universe. There's a common claim that America's founding fathers were deists, not Christians. That's an absurd claim wholly unsubstantiated by the great volume of evidence at hand. What is deism? One man defined it with these words. Deism is the belief of a creator who made the world but does not take a personal interest in it, does not require worship, answers prayers, judge behavior, or necessarily promise a life after death. And so a God who got the ball rolling and backed up and went and did something else. Deism is a fairly benign belief because there are no consequences for accepting or rejecting it. The profoundly pervasive presence and influence of the biblical Christian worldview in America's first Continental Congress is abundantly evident in America's founding document, the Declaration of Independence, that clearly proclaims, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, 
um, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It goes on to reference, quote, the laws of nature and of nature's God, and closes by, quote, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. And hear me, all the references to God are capped. They're all capitalized as they ought to be. It continues to declare the signers, quote, reliance on the protection of divine providence. That's not deism. That's a biblical Christian worldview in America's founding document. The founders' prolific use of Christian vocabulary, rhetoric, and argument becomes even more evident when you take a look at other statements of colonial rights and concerns, such as the Suffolk Resolves, the Declaration of Rights, and the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms, and the many explicitly Christian calls for prayer, fasting, and thanksgiving issued by the Continental and Federation Congresses. On July 8th, 1776, just after signing the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin, not a deist and not a Christian, in the full biblical sense of a personal faith and repentance, but very much evidencing the influence of the biblical Christian worldview that dominated the thinking of America's founding fathers, suggested this. He suggested the seal and motto of America to characterize our brand new nation should be Moses lifting up his staff, dividing the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his chariot being overwhelmed by the waters with this motto emblazoned below, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. America was founded as a Christian nation. The Christian worldview is what rests beneath America's founders and the documents that flowed from their pens, even men such as Benjamin Franklin. In 1790, when Benjamin Franklin was 85 years old, late in his life, he wrote a letter to Yale President Ezra Stiles saying, quote, I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we can render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental principles of all sound religion, and I regard them as you do in whatever sect I meet with them. Benjamin Franklin was no deist. Franklin's adult opinion of Jesus was similar to that of Jefferson's. And I say adult because early in his life, early in his life, he did write a statement that was very much deist. But he grew up. He says this of Jesus Christ, much like Thomas Jefferson. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think his system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is like to see. But I apprehend... It has received various corrupting changes, and I have at the most some doubts as to his divinity. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and I think it needless to busy myself with it now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. I see no harm, however, in its being believed, if that belief has the good consequence, as it probably has, of making his doctrines more respected and more observed, especially as I do not perceive that the supreme God takes it amiss by distinguishing the unbelievers in his government of the world with any peculiar marks of his displeasure. That to say, Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian through repentance and confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, but he was a Christian in the sense that he adopted the Christian worldview. He adopted the word of God as the moral standard of mankind, and particularly the word of Jesus Christ as the moral standard of mankind. In 1789, America's first president, George Washington, closed his inaugural oath with these four pivotal words, So help me God. The first president of the United States, sworn in, closed his, his oath with these words, So help me God. Everyone knew then, as they know now, that President Washington was referring to the God of the Bible the God of Christianity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Since that time, those words have been part of every president's oath of office. From America's conception as a colony, our nation and its duly elected representative leaders have always believed it is essential to thank the Lord for His innumerable providential blessings and to ask for His continued mercy and guidance in leading the United States. On this topic, the conservative radio talk show host, Dennis Prager, rightly said, quote, Our Constitution was designed around the belief that the individual and society are morally accountable to God and to the moral demands of the Bible. That was the view of every one of the founders, including Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Those are the two always touted as the deists. They were not. 
In January of 2019, the newly elected, democratically controlled Congress attempted to remove President Washington's historic oath, so help me God. When anyone swears in when testifying before a committee in Congress, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming commented on the DNC's attempt to enforce their secular atheism on all of Congress, saying, quote, It is not surprising that the Democrats would try to remove God from committee proceedings in one of their first acts in the majority. They really have become the party of Karl Marx. That was in January of 2019. And indeed, they have shown their hand much more clearly now. They really are the party of Satan, the party of secular atheistic Marxism. The Democratic Party's presidential candidate is backed by Bernie Sanders and a highly influential horde of radical Marxists. One man described Marxism and the horrific results of its inevitable tyranny well with these words, quote, The best scholarship now tells us that between 1917 and 1989, approximately 100 million people were murdered by various Marxist regimes. And millions more were tortured, starved, exiled, enslaved, and sent to concentration camps. Collectivization, one-party rule, man-made famine, secret police, arrest, propaganda, censorship, ethnic cleansing, purges, show trials, re-education camps, gulags, firing squads, and killing fields, all these defined life under Marxism. Whole new categories of anti-social crimes were created by the dictatorship of the proletariat. Under communism, for example, it became a crime punishable by death to be a member of the burgess, an enemy of the people a counter-revolutionary, or a deviationist. Deviationist. You're not going with the flow. The flow of secular atheist Marxism. You're a deviationist. Even those who were just skeptical or indifferent to the goals of the regime were labeled saboteurs and subject to imprisonment or worse. Nothing in the long span of human history comes close to the tyranny, terror, and mass genocide caused by Marxism in power. Nothing. Oh, but he's wrong. The same forces are behind the slaughter of the unborn. The same people with the same heart serving the same devil are behind the genocide of 1.6 billion babies since 1980. That's their party. The Democratic Party. Satan's party. The secular atheist Marxist party. And voting for it or being a member of it is treason against Christ, your king, and treason against the United States of America. If you want to be part of the Democratic Party, leave Christ church because you're a member of Satan's. Today's secular atheist Marxist tyrants have much in common with the tyrants of old, whether they be popes or kings. When King George III imposed his tyranny over the American colonies, the pastoral response was loud and clear. John Calvin laid the groundwork over a century before in his famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. In it, he reasoned from the scriptures, it was in fact lawful for a nation's population to throw off a tyrannical government that made a mockery of God's word, law, and gospel. Calvin boldly wrote to the king of France in 1536, saying, The characteristic of a true sovereign is to acknowledge that in the administration of his kingdom, he is a minister of God. He who does not make his reign subservient to the divine glory acts the part not of a king, but a robber. He moreover deceives himself who anticipates long prosperity to any kingdom which is not ruled by the scepter of God, that is, by his divine word. In chapter 20 of the Institutes, Calvin wrote these pivotal words. We are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it, nor be moved by all the dignity which they possess as magistrates, a dignity to which no injury is done when it is subordinated to the special and truly supreme power of God. Under the tutelage of John Calvin, and in the spirit of Matthew 28.18's declaration that all authority rests in Jesus Christ, Reformed pulpits thundered forth seditious truths, and America's colonists thus held that it was their Christian duty to oppose any tyrant and any tyranny that violated God's law, God's gospel, and the Christian freedom to serve and worship God according to the light of Holy Scripture. 
This biblical and spiritual foundation is what led to the representative leaders of the colonies to pen the Declaration of Independence that became the founding document of the greatest, freest, most prosperous, most Christian nation the world has ever known. And this nation has shed the light of Christ to all the nations of the earth. Patrick Henry is famous for his give me liberty or give me death speech delivered to the Virginia Convention on March 23rd, 1775. It is a lesser known fact that Patrick Henry said things like this, quote, being a Christian is a character which I prize far above all this world has or can boast. In Patrick's Famous speech, he passionately declared, quote, An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. It was not a statement of a radical separatist. It was a statement of a radical Christian desiring to serve the one true God freely out from under the tyranny of a king and the king's church. It is words and convictions like those upon which our Constitution's Second Amendment was founded. There's a painting of the first Congress in prayer. It hangs in the Library of Congress. Let me describe it here. Washington was kneeling there, and Patrick Henry, Randolph, Rutledge, Lee, and Jay And by their side there stood bowed in reverence the Puritan patriots of New England who at that moment had reason to believe that an armed soldiery was wasting their humble households. It was believed that Boston had been bombarded and destroyed. They prayed fervently, quote, for America, for Congress, for the province of Massachusetts Bay, and especially for the town of Boston. And who can realize the emotion with which they turned imploringly to heaven for divine interposition? It was enough, says Mr. Adams, John Adams, second president of the United States, to melt a heart of stone. I saw the tears gush into the eyes of the old, grave Pacific Quakers of Philadelphia. George Washington on his knees with many others praying to God. June 12, 1775, less than two months after the shot heard around the world was fired at Concord, the Continental Congress issued a call for all citizens to fast and pray and confess their sins that the Lord God might bless the land. I quote, this is from their statement, And it is recommended to Christians of all denominations to assemble for public worship and to abstain from servile labor and recreations on said day. Christians founding a Christian nation calling for Christians to pray. Continental Congress on March 16th, 1776, appointed a day of fasting and prayer for the colonies. It read like this, The Congress, desirous to have people of all ranks and degrees duly impressed with a solemn sense of God's superintending providence and of their duty devoutly to rely on His aid and direction, do earnestly recommend Friday the 17th of May be observed by the colonies as a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer that we may with united hearts confess and bewail our manifold sins and transgressions and by sincere repentance and amendment of life appease God's righteous displeasure and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ obtain this pardon and forgiveness." through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain this pardon and forgiveness. After each of the delegates had signed the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams, cousin to John Adams, second president of the United States, Samuel Adams declared, We have this day restored the sovereign, capital S, God. We have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven. And from the rising to the setting sun, let his kingdom come. The Continental Congress, July 3rd, 1776, records John Adams' proclamation. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America to be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty from one end of the continent to the other, from this time forward, forevermore. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance. Independence Day, it ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance. By solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, illuminations, from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forever. I told you about Benjamin Franklin's suggestion for the seal and motto of our United States. 
Thomas Jefferson proposed this. The children of Israel in the wilderness, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Continental Congress on July 9th, 1776, the day following the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, ringing the Liberty Bell, was moved to establish prayer as a daily part of this new nation, saying, quote, resolved that the Reverend Mr. Duchy be appointed chaplain to Congress and that he be desired to attend every morning at 9 o'clock. July 9, 1776, they authorized the Continental Army to provide chaplains for their troops. On that same day, General George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, issued the order to appoint chaplains to every regiment. George Washington called every officer and man to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. One of the first acts of the Continental Congress in 1777, was to approve and recommend to the people that 20,000 copies of the Holy Bible be imported from other sources. This was in response to the shortage of Bibles in America caused by the Revolutionary War interrupting trade with England. The chaplain of Congress, Patrick Allison, brought the matter to the attention of Congress who assigned it to a special congressional committee which reported, quote, this is the report of the Congressional Committee in 1777, quote, the use of the Bible is so universal and its importance so great that your committee refers the above to the consideration of Congress, and if Congress shall not think it expedient to order the importation of types and paper, the committee recommends that Congress will order the Committee of Commerce to import 20,000 Bibles from Holland, Scotland, or elsewhere into different parts of the states of the Union, whereupon it was resolved and accordingly to direct said Committee of Commerce to import 20,000 copies of the Bible. This is how the United States of America was founded. Founded as a Christian nation, dear saints. Historian Mark David Hall wrote an excellent article titled, Did America Have a Christian Foundation? In that article he wrote, and I quote, The Virginia Colony's 1610 legal code opens with this, Whereas His Majesty, like himself, a most zealous prince, has in his own realms a principal care of true religion and reverence to God, and has always strictly commanded his generals and governors, with all his forces whatsoever, to let their ways be like his ends for the glory of God. The first three articles of this text go on to state that the colonists have embarked on a sacred cause. They mandate regular church attendance and they further establish that anyone who speaks impiously against the Trinity or blasphemes God's name will be put to death. Early colonial laws and constitutions such as the Mayflower Compact, the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, the Massachusetts Body of Liberties are filled with such language, and in some cases they incorporate biblical texts wholesale. Perhaps more surprisingly, tolerant Quaker Pennsylvania was more similar to Puritan New England than many realize. The charter of liberties and frame of government of the province of Pennsylvania begins by making it clear that God has ordained government, and it even quotes Romans 13 to this effect. Article 38 of the document lists, quote, offenses against God that may be punished by the magistrate, including swearing, cursing, lying, profane talking, drunkenness, obscene words, incest, sodomy, stage plays, cards, dice, may games, gamesters, masks, revels, bull baiting, bear biting, and the like, which excite the people to rudeness, cruelty, looseness, and irreligion. An extensive survey of early colonial constitutions and laws reveals many similar provisions as well. And at least nine, at least nine of the 13 colonies had established churches and all required office holders to be Christians. All required office holders to be Christians. Or in some cases, Protestants. Quaker Pennsylvania, for instance, expected office holders to be, quote, such as possess faith in Jesus Christ. If one is to understand the story of the United States of America, it is important to have a proper appreciation for its Christian colonial roots. By almost any measure, colonists of European descent who settled in the New World were serious Christians whose constitutions, laws, and practices reflected the influence of Christianity. On the surface, the war for American independence appears to be an inherently unchristian event. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 seems to leave little room for revolution. Quote, let every soul be subject to higher powers, for there's no power but of God. The powers that are ordained of God, whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Historically, Christian thinkers have taken this and similar biblical passages to prohibit rebellion against civic authorities. However, in the 12th century, some Christian scholars began to allow for the possibility that inferior magistrates might overthrow evil kings. 
These ideas were developed and significantly expanded by the Protestant reformers. Why? Because they were beneath Roman Catholic kings. John Calvin, the most politically conservative of these men, contended that in some cases inferior magistrates might resist an ungodly ruler. However, reformed leaders such as John Knox, George Buchanan, Samuel Rutherford of Scotland, Stephanus Junius, Brutus, and Theodore Beza of France, and Christopher Goodman and John Ponet of England argued that inferior magistrates must resist unjust rulers and even permitted or required citizens to do so. And we see some inferior magistrates resisting unjust rulers right now. They're called sheriffs. Sheriffs resisting mayors and governors. The influence of the reformed political tradition in the founding era is manifested in a variety of ways, but particularly noteworthy is the almost unanimous support Calvinist clergy offered to American patriots. This was noticed by the other side, as is suggested by the loyalist Peter Oliver, who railed against, quote, the black regiment, the dissenting clergy, black robes, the black regiment, the dissenting clergy who took so active a part in the rebellion, unquote. King George himself reportedly referred to the war for independence as a, quote, Presbyterian rebellion. America's founders were committed to the idea that religion, by which virtually all of them meant Christianity, was necessary for public happiness and political prosperity. This view was so widespread that James Hudson called it the founders' syllogism. The key question with respect to particular establishments at the state level was whether they helped or hurt the faith. America's founders did not want Congress to establish a national church, and many opposed establishments at the state level as well. Yet they believed, as George Washington declared in his farewell address, that of, quote, all the dispositions and habits which led to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Moreover, almost without exception, they agreed that civic authorities could promote and encourage Christianity and that it was appropriate for elected officials to make religious arguments in the public square. There was virtually no support for contemporary visions of a separation of church and state that would have political leaders avoid religious language and require public spaces to be stripped of religious symbols. There is precious little evidence that the founders were deist, wanted religion excluded from the public square, or desired the strict separation of church and state. On the other hand, they identified themselves as Christians, were influenced in important ways by Christian ideas and generally thought it appropriate for civic authorities to encourage Christianity. Christian ideas underlie some of the key tenets of America's constitutional order. For instance, the founders believed that humans are created in the image of God, which led them to design institutions and laws meant to protect and promote human dignity. Because they were convinced that humans are sinful, they attempted to avoid the concentration of power by framing a national government with carefully enumerated powers. As well, the founders were committed to liberty, but they never imagined that provisions of the Bill of Rights would be used to protect licentiousness. And they clearly thought moral considerations should inform legislation. Finally, we ignored our peril, the founders' insight, that democracy requires a moral people and that faith is an important, if not indispensable, support of morality. Such faith may well flourish best without government support, but it should not have to flourish in the face of government hostility. Oh, dear saints, we have a nation built upon the church of Jesus Christ and the word of God, a state that flowed from the word of God. But today, Satan's church and Satan's state are in league. They're united together against Christ's church and the state that flowed from it united together against the Word of God and the state that flowed from it. The wicked shall be turned into hell, says Psalm 9.17. Psalm 10.13 says, Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. Our nation is renouncing God. It's embracing secular atheistic Marxism. Satan's church has renounced God. Oh, it still claims the name of Jesus. It still claims God, still claims the Bible, but they hate the God of the Bible. They hate Jesus Christ, who is going to come with fiery judgment on all those who do not obey the gospel. 
Job 12.23 says, He, God, makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. And saints, God made this nation great because it was built on the foundation of the true church and the true revelation of God from that church in the Word of God. God will again make this nation great and make it a light set on a hill for the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel for all the nations of the world as Christ's church repents, as Christ's church purges itself of Satan's church, as Christ's church refuses to allow Satan's church united with Satan's state and their satanic agenda to sit in the pews, blaspheming Christ, to walk amongst the sheep of the Lord's fold with their Goat appetites and goat passions serving the evil one. What will end the advance of secular atheistic Marxism? What will end racism? What will end the sexual revolution that's resulted in 1.6 billion murdered babies? What will end the tsunami of sexual perversion and gender rebellion sweeping America and the rest of the world? What will defeat the army of sexual deviants determined to destroy our children and our grandchildren's lives, minds, bodies, and souls? What will end Black Lives Matters and its antichrist agenda of sexual perversion, gender rebellion, abortion, and the destruction of the family? What will end the riots and put out the flames burning in our cities? C.H. Spurgeon as rightly said, the mission of the church is to go into all the world and to tell the gospel to every creature. There will be oppression unless the gospel is spread. This is the one balm for all of earth's wounds. The greatest help that can be given to any people is the preaching of the gospel. Keep to the gospel, brethren, and you will keep to the one universal, never-failing remedy. And you must understand, dear saints, that Satan's church and Satan's state is attacking the gospel. It's an assault. On the gospel, when they say the wicked are turned into heaven and nations that turn from God are blessed when they turn the word of God on its head from within Christ's church and from without. Weak and cowardly pastors and churches that do nothing to defend or advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the earth abound. May God rebuke them and close their doors forever. May they never open again. May God raise up His true church to fight the good fight for the glory of God and the souls of men. To put Satan's church out. To put Satan's state out. To put the unholy union of Satan's church and Satan's state out. And then to go out to reach them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A pure church is a powerful church. A pure church is what turns the world upside down for the glory of our King. Let's pray.